Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The sermon today is a meditation on the Eighth Commandment. You shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. With Greg's assistance, I will give attention to how this is very much bound up with, our, with human lives, giving examples both of disobedience to it and obedience. Most of them are taken from Lutheran collections of anecdotes for the catechism. The immediate reference of this commandment is to lying in court. In a court in ancient Smyrna, a rich man and a poor man disputed over the ownership of a house. The poor man had papers to show his right to it, but the rich man called them forgeries and brought many lying witnesses to support his own claim. He also sent the judge a bribe of 500 golden ducats. He pointed to his witnesses and asked, Where are the witnesses that this poor man is in the right? The judge answered, I can bring 500 witnesses for it, pointing to the gold coins and decided for the poor man. Another example is what happened to St. Athanasius. He was accused of the Arians of murdering a certain bishop named Arsenius and cutting off his hand. The hand was actually shown as evidence. Athanasius entrusted himself to God for defense and went to the council of Tyre to defend himself. And who should he see there but Arsenius himself? Athanasius could then make this speech. Here is Arsenius alive. This is his right hand, and this is his left hand. But where did his third hand come from? which I am supposed to have cut off. False witness can take many forms in uh, human lives, the lives of sinners, such as misrepresentation and cruel labels and libels. The Lutheran churchman William Dahlman described it when he said, Why be bothered with refuting arguments when abuse is ready to your hand and will do just as well? Hasty conclusions drawn too quickly can sometimes do great damage, sometimes devastating and deadly. A gruesome example is the gentleman who laid a costly ring on a window ledge and found it missing only a quarter of an hour later. The only one to come into the room during that time was his servant, whom he relentlessly accused of stealing it, though the man earnestly protested his innocence. He was condemned and put to death for it, lamenting the loss not only of his good name, but as well as his life. Then years later, the gentleman was informed that the ring had been found in the nest of a bird just outside the window, along with many other trinkets, and his soul was grievously troubled by it until his death. How necessary it is to hear and consider both sides when charges are being hurled about. Even the heathen conscience can perceive this principle of the moral law. Alexander the Great used to cover one ear when an an accusation was brought to him. That ear, he said, is for the accused. Even the truth can become false testimony if it is not the whole truth and if it gives a, a false impression of someone's character. 
The mate of a ship got drunk, and the captain recorded it in the log. Mate drunk today. The mate implored him to take it out of the record since it could cost him his job when the owners of the ship came and read it, and he intended to avoid this offense in the future. But the captain responded, This is the fact, and into the log it goes. When the mate was keeping the log, he made this entry, Captain Sober today. The captain indignantly said that this would give the false impression that it was not usual for him to be sober. But the mate said, this is the fact, and into the log it goes. False testimony can take the form of a promise of faithfulness and protection, which is then broken. That's the treachery of betrayal. The Bible gives examples like Delilah and Judas Iscariot. There is also Emperor Sigismund giving John Huss a promise of self-conduct for the Council of Constance. Huss said, I have freely presented myself for trial, trusting to the honor and fate of the emperor who is present here. He said these words as he was condemned to be burned, and the emperor blushed with shame. We too may blush with shame, being as vile as he, for we have all fractured the truth many times, many ways. We can heartily rejoice that we have a gracious Savior whose death is the sacrifice for this sin and and for every abomination of sin. And he wants to give healing and restoration to our lives, giving us his Holy Spirit to sanctify our tongue and every part of our lives. In his love, he desires us to become more and more like him and to share his zeal for truth and truthfulness. Jesper Brokman, the Danish Lutheran bishop and theologian, astutely pointed out the error of the malicious generalization while conversing one evening in a social gathering. The loose life of a certain minister was being discussed, and a young lady in the group said, All our preachers are like that. A little, little later, someone referred to a scandalous young lady. The bishop said, But from this... By no means does it follow that all our young ladies are like that. Even pastors need to be told or reminded of the good counsel of Luther in these matters. There was one who boasted at a man's meeting about his success at converting people, openly mentioning names and juicy details merely to enhance his own reputation. He had forgotten what he had once heard in Luther's small catechism. When you become aware of a sin, simply make your ears a tomb and bury it. Keep your knowledge to yourself and do not give it out to others. Another minister, as a guest preacher, illustrated his sermon with a story of his skillful counseling of a young man, as telling the name and all about his weaknesses. Someone in the congregation should have interrupted and told him, in Luther's words, that he should in God's name keep his mouth shut which he has opened in the name of the devil. Part of the Christian life is the zeal to defend the one falsely accused and to seek to establish the facts for his sake. The following story from a well-known book and movie is about a pastor who was not Lutheran, and you can ponder how you would have handled the situation. An accusation was made against the pastor's son that he was responsible for making a young girl pregnant 
causing her family to leave town suddenly and move to Chicago to avoid the scandal. The son was suspended from high school because of it. The father accepted his son's firm protest of innocence and immediately set out to trace the slander to its source. Principal, a member of his congregation, told him that he had heard it from the superintendent, another member. The superintendent had got the story from a Mr. Moody, who heard it from Mrs. Simmons, who was told it by Mrs. Goldwaite, whose husband heard it in the bank from Mr. Claypool, who overheard it said by the YMCA secretary, who had been given the tale by the city librarian, who got it from her assistant, who received it from Mrs. Ledbetter, who heard it from Mrs. Digby. Mrs. Digby was a member of his church who was angry at him because of a choir dispute. He spoke bluntly to her. You did it to hurt me by hurting my son. You made up the whole dirty story. This girl is not pregnant, and her father simply moved because of his job. I know. I went to Chicago to find out. I could sue you, but that would be unchristian. I'm going to preach a sermon on revival and repentance, and then I want you to confess your terrible sin in public and pray for forgiveness. She did, and he said, God bless you, and knelt beside her at the altar. This story also illustrates the Christian's serious duty to rebuke the scandal monger and call him or her to repentance. We can think here of St. Augustine. St. Augustine had this poem at his meal table. He that is wont to slander absent men may never at this table sit again. Maybe we can get one of those for the dining hall. We can also think here of Augustine's pious mother, Monica. Monica was an example of the beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers. When she heard of women quarreling with each other, she would go to each one and tell her about some of the good qualities of the other and was able in this way to resolve many a strife. Here we see an example of how Jesus takes a part of the moral law, the duty to try to better understand the neighbor, which is written in the hearts even of heathens like Alexander the Great, who was cited earlier, and how he gives a fuller understanding of it in the light of his word. That is, this is part of the new life in Christ, which we are enabled to sh- by which we are enabled to share his love of our neighbor. Peter the Great, the Russian Tsar, knew about this too. When someone would speak evil of a person, Peter used to listen attentively and then say, Now tell what you have observed that belongs to his good side. Christian love seeks to explain everything as much as possible in the kindest way. This goes against the natural tendency to put the worst construction on things without checking them out. For example, a woman was visiting her sister. On the third day, the hosts forgot to put a chair at the dinner table for her. She walked out of the dining room shouting, I can take a hint. If you don't want me here, I can go home. May the gracious Lord forgive our failures for Jesus' sake and help us to grow in love for our neighbors. Amen.